Hi everyone, I'm Rick Carrillo. And I'm Josh McCormick. This is Salute Talks. Climate change means a lot of different things depending on someone's point of view. The planet's definition of climate change? Rising tides, fiercer storms, and major ecological habitats such as the rainforest facing cataclysmic effects. The simple calculus is that as a human race, we aren't acting fast enough to make a dent in the issue. And climate experts say without rapid movements, the issue is only going to get worse. Temperatures will continue to rise, food supplies will run short, and generations that precede us may inherit a dying world. Today, Dolores Didi Belmaris, the Texas field consultant of Moms Clean Air Force, joined us in studio, and Dr. Juan Declet Pareto, a climate scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists, called in Salute Talks to discuss the climate change problem, how we got where we are today, and what we have to do to solve this problem and save our planet. We're really excited to have both of you on. We know that this is a very important topic that we need to be talking about right now. Um, Didi, um, first of all, can you share your experience in this issue when you first got involved and what led you to where you are today? Sure. Growing up uh, on the on the south side of San Antonio, we know that in you know Latino communities, and I grew up in in a predominantly um, Latino community in in San Antonio. That you know we're surrounded by toxic pollution, things that cause toxic pollution, coal plants, a small refinery, the Air Force bases and the planes that came in and out of uh, Kelly Air Force Base, for example. Um, I remember seeing slaughterhouses. You know, there's two slaughterhouses on the south side of San Antonio, um, a waste dump facility. And when I was a kid, I, I, I couldn't make the connection between what was coming out of these uh, facilities and our health or the effect that it was having on the climate. But as I, you know, as I got older, that's when I made this connection that there's something that we're doing that is not right, that it's, 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 it's causing some problems here, not only for um, our environment, but also for, you know, for our health and the health of our planet when we just extract oil and we dig up dirt and land and we use so much water and we waste so much water and pollute so much water when we're doing these things. I mean, I think as a Latina, my, we're naturally born a conservationist. I think people like to, we, we joke around about saving the, the Montequilla container and reusing it and reusing it, reusing it. And, and it's funny, but it's not because, you know, when you're, when you're struggling and you're working class or you're poor, you have to save things. You save um, containers, you're naturally going to want to save the planet as well. You want to save your communities from whatever is, is, is polluting the air, polluting um, the water. But I, I would say that in within the Latino community, there is a duality with that too, because you're right. There is this mentality of saving and maximizing everything you have in front of you um, to the fullest. But there is an inequity when it comes to Latinos with regards to education and information or even the, the capability of certain communities to be able to preserve the planet. You know, how do you speak to a, an underserved population that's living in a very rural part of San Antonio who would love to preserve the planet and maybe get a, a more fuel-efficient vehicle, but if it's a family car that's been around for 20-plus years, they're going to say, I can't. Right. You're, you're so correct because we are uh, disproportionately affected uh, by climate change and uh, we have the hardest means of addressing, uh, of addressing it to make changes. 
I think you guys are right, you know, in that that there are many inequities that have to be addressed that constrain. I mean, when we talk about capabilities, we have to be a little bit careful that, that, that we don't send the message where we say something like Latinos are less capable, right? We're, what we're talking about is just the set of things in, 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 the, in, in their own socioeconomic structure that they have, for example. You would like to be an environmentalist or you would like to not pollute so much, but if you live in, an, in a neighborhood where there, the place where you can get your sodas is from a dollar store, then you're going to end up buying a whole bunch of plastic bottles, right? Because you live in a food desert, for example. And, 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 and many people would think, well, this is a little bit outside of the realm of climate change, but really it's not. Juan, could you share a brief overview of how we understand climate change today, when that conversation started and when it first started to gain national attention? Um, yeah, well, the way that we um, understand um, the issue of, of climate change is um, from a scientific perspective and the perspective of, of, of uh, many people in the United States and across the world are impacted by climate change is that it's no less than a crisis and probably crisis of our time, the, the big issue that we need to solve as a, as a society. Um, and what that revolves around is the fact that um, carbon emissions, which are heat trapping gases that are emitted um, as we burn fossil fuels to generate energy to power our vehicles, to fly our airplanes, um, and so on, are um, warming the planet to such an extent that if we don't take action um, to reduce those emissions, we are going to continue to see the worst of climate change. And we have had some uh, measure of that in the last couple of years uh, in, in recently in terms of uh, destructive hurricanes um, that many people in the Gulf Coast uh, experience in the U.S. Caribbean. Um, um, recently, um, this um, rainy season in, in many areas of the Midwest saw catastrophic amounts of rain are uh, putting many people uh, at risk and, and even the capacity for farm workers, for example, to or, or farmers to plant. And, and the thing that always um, has been front and center for me has been that those impacts and the way that people experience that is very unequally distributed. Um, and, and our listeners, you know, our Latino community is no stranger to that. And as a society, we've known about this for a long time. I mean, one of the um, research papers that has been cited by the international scientific community as being the first mention of the first time that, that scientists, the fact that carbon emissions are warming the planet goes back to 1967. Juan, that's amazing. It's interesting that this crisis has existed for so long, and your perspective on the the direness of the situation is twofold. One, as a scientist, but also as just a a tenant of this planet. So, so did you hear Juan talk about this issue? How does that resonate with you from the perspective of Clean Mom Air Force? Uh, as a mom, I look at the science behind uh, what's driving climate change. And uh, as a mom, as a member of Moms Clean Air Force, I want to take action uh, to protect my son's future. I have a 16-year-old son. And uh, if we don't act quickly and take serious um, steps to reducing carbon emissions, we're looking at a very different world than what we're seeing right now. And that and that terrifies me. It terrifies a lot of parents. We have over 1 million moms and dads across the country that are in this fight with me. So thank you. I, you know, I have three daughters, right? One is a teenager, but the little ones, they're three-year-old twins. And when I heard the news recently about what was going on with the rainforest, I took pause. And I, I wondered, will I have to explain to them when they're teenagers? You know, what exactly was a rainforest? It, you know, it's something that the rainforest itself become an extinct creature, a poster of what once was. Or that could be us. 
we think maybe animals could adapt, the planet could heal itself, humans might not be able to adapt to um, a world that is so much different with more hurricanes, with uh, more intense droughts, tornadoes, uh, rising sea levels, higher temperatures. We've never faced that in our history before. So would we be able to survive it? We don't know. I think Didi brings a key point. You know, that some systems, some people, some animals, some plants may be able to adapt. But let's talk about let's talk about the capacity for humans to to adapt. We know that these impacts are not distributed equally. We know that not everybody has the same ability or money or resources to get in a car and evacuate a, an area that's going to be hit by a massive hurricane, for example. We saw that in Texas. We saw that in Louisiana. We know that a lot of poor people, people without a vehicle, were left behind after Katrina. They could not get in a car and go drive to a hotel, for example, or drive to a family member's home. We, we saw that in the Eastern Seaboard. We saw that in Puerto Rico as well, right? So that means adaptation is important, but the scale of things that we need to do to be able to avoid the worst of climate change means that we need to mitigate the emissions. We need to reduce the emissions that are warming the planet. I want to uh, come back to something that we were discussing earlier, uh, the timeline behind climate change. Uh, when the report was first released, what happened between 1967 to today and what got us to this point. Um, could, could both of you share your understanding, um, Juan, from, a, from an, a national level and then Didi from like the grassroots, what people are thinking about this um, situation? Um, well, I would say that um, the scientific community, um, not just national in the U.S., but globally has been sounding this alarm for, for a long time. Some of those of us who remember during the 90s, the big issue that, that, that we had globally with the ozone layer, the hole in the ozone layer, it was possible back then to recognize the scientific basis of that issue and recognize then what the suite of solutions were. And nationally, then by extension globally, there was a bipartisan consensus that allowed us as a society to get together and reduce um, chemicals that were causing the, the hole in the, in, in, in the ozone layer to become larger. So that was a point in time when something was able to be done about this. Now, we fast forward a couple of years with a very different political environment and electoral environment and, and the level of animosities that exist across the main political parties and ideologies in the country. And we have a very different um, a place and much more difficult place that we're starting from to be able to do anything about climate change. Didi, uh, can you share what um, the perspective of this issue has looked like on the ground floor in San Antonio and other communities that you've been to? Well, I I want to celebrate the the states and the cities that are taking climate action. Um, we'll, we'll start here in in Texas, and we have a lot to do here in Texas. We are the largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions um, in the country, and if we made Texas a country, we would be the seventh uh, largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. So we have a lot of work to do here. Um, so Austin has uh, passed a climate plan to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and, and move towards renewable energy. Dallas is in the uh, process of working on a climate plan. Houston is also working on a climate plan. Um, excitedly, San Antonio has just released the second draft of their climate plan, and uh, the goal of that plan is to uh, make San Antonio carbon neutral by 2050. So uh, those are 
great steps that we're taking, but we do, we need to do more. And there are, and there are other cities and states like um, New Mexico and Colorado and and Washington D.C. and Atlanta that are and Nevada that are taking very bold, very aggressive steps to reduce their uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, by 2035, by 2040, and moving their states to use renewable energy. Speaking of the steps that need to be taken, um, I, I want to talk about now the consequences that are happening and will happen in the future if dedicated action isn't taken. Juan, could you share um, from the Union of Concerned Scientists Research, paint a picture for listeners of what the world looks like if even slow action is taken to fix the climate change issue? Absolutely. We just released a report last a couple of weeks ago called Killer Heat that highlights the choices that the United States has to take action on climate to um, avoid the worst. So we took a look at what um, uh, historically had happened all across the United States and what could be in store if we take no action, slow action, or we take rapid action on climate change. 100 Fahrenheit and above heat index values is a threshold above which people with pre-existing conditions, the very young, the very old, people with physical or mental disabilities who may not be able to communicate their heat discomfort, their, their discomfort in general, are at risk of mild to severe and life-threatening heat illness or, or, or death. Texas experienced on average 21 days or so, like th- three weeks or so. By mid-century, we estimate that if we don't take action, on climate change, that number could jump to 75. Now, by the late century, that number jumps to 109 days. Now, if we took rapid action to reduce um, carbon emissions that are warming the planet, we could reduce that number to 62. So to summarize, we are locked into some amount of climate change impacts because those carbon emissions that are in the atmosphere today are going to continue to be there for a while because the mid-century is only a couple of decades away. I mean, climate scientists have warned us that the climate decade, the 2030s decade, is the cutoff point that we have to make a serious dent in carbon emissions to avoid the worst of climate change. I hope I didn't freak everybody out completely. No, 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 you didn't. Uh, well, you did, but, I, but it's, it's a... Uh, yeah, we all we had yeah. need to take... I forgot that, the question. Thanks, yeah, thanks. Yeah. here in Texas. We appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, that's a just... It's just, But I think it's a constructive fear, though, so... Yeah, it's good. That's, it's needed. Um, Didi... Can you share whenever you're talking with elected leaders, community members, how you're trying to illustrate these consequences and what it looks like in the in the community? Make it like real for them. Right. When, here in Texas, when I when I speak to um, either local or congressional officials, I just point to Hurricane Harvey. You know, the devastation that came and that there are still communities, there are still people who are trying to recover from that hurricane. Let's look at uh, Hurricane uh, Maria in Puerto Rico. Hundreds of thousands of people are still trying to recover uh, from that. And the wildfires in California, let's look at what's going on in the Amazon right now. If we don't take action now, we're going to have more hurricanes. We're going to have more wildfires. And how are we going to take care of our citizens afterwards. That's what I present to them, is that your job is to protect your citizens, and this is how we can do it, by taking climate action, by having these plans to, to reduce our carbon emissions and having mitigation measures for when events do happen. And I'll ask a question, and I'm sure I know the answer, but what is their initial 
sentiment to the idea of, of being concerned about climate change? I think generally people are concerned. It's how they want to address it and at what speed and who are we going to consider uh, when we're taking these measures to uh, reduce uh, carbon emissions and taking climate action. There are powerful lobbies in this country. Um, our fossil fuel industry is very powerful in Texas. And so sometimes our, our government officials uh, want to keep their interests in mind when they think about how we're going to move uh, forward uh, with climate action. Uh, because what we need to do is de- reduce our dependence on fossil fuels and move towards renewable energy. And that takes a, a big industry out of the picture. I think that there's a lot of sentiment, especially amongst those who um, are hesitant to take rapid climate change action, um, that, well, you know, we really can't do anything now because our economy relies on these industries. Um, And while it is really tough that they're making the planet a harder place to live, like everyone needs money to get by. So um, can can, um, either of you challenge that thought? Um, And if so, how can we take dedicated rapid action on this issue without, you know, really impacting the American economy? We, we've heard that story before. That is the false choice between environment and jobs and economic development. That is always an excuse that is used by the industry to cry wolf and say, hang on a second. If we do anything about this right now, we are going to destroy the economy. We're going to kill jobs. I mean, this is, these are the same kinds of arguments that the tobacco industry used decades ago to try to say that they that, that there should be no legislation, there should be no public health action on tobacco because they lost the fight on public health because they could not sustain the notion that tobacco was not harmful for health. So there's a new sort of climate denier argument which takes a skeptical role and says, well, hmm, we can't do a whole lot about it and we're going to kill um, the economy if we, if we do so. That is patently untrue. There is a green economy. There is a renewable energy economy that is developing. There are many tax incentives in Congress for wind uh, development, for solar development, for electrical vehicles. There is a recognition globally that the coal-based economy and the, uh, is not going to be saved by any measure. There is a need to retool our energy grid to wean us away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy and develop the workforce that it's going to be able um, to install those panels, to develop that technology, to make that happen. So earlier part of this year, Rice University put out a study um, that said that Texas could completely move away from coal use for energy, uh, for energy production, and move entirely to wind and solar. We are in a perfect position uh, from the winds in West Texas all the way down to uh, the southern coast, um, alongside with using uh, using solar. Um, so there are there are jobs in the renewable economy. We do have to be mindful of those that work in in the coal industry or in the fossil fuel industry, making sure that we do have this just transition uh, for these these workers. We need to make sure that we are providing job training and that they are able to transition to, let's say, wind or solar or working in, in, in battery storage. So the potential is there, but uh, we do definitely need to invest 
in uh, those sectors of, the, of, of, of energy. And that leaving the fossil fuel industry to renewable energy, that's clean. That is, those jobs are safer. And they're also well paid because we need to also be mindful of, of how much people were making before and, and after. But I think we can get there. And I know that here in Texas, we definitely can get there. So I have a question for, for you know, in regards to a listener who's hearing our, our conversation and, and trying to buy into the idea um, that, that a green job is a sustainable job. And I think it's, it's, it's true. There, there can be certain platforms in place to help the transition from, from coal workers to a more greener uh, profession. Would that then become a very specialized profession where it requires a certain level of education that perhaps certain communities aren't prepared to take on with regards to cost, with regards to investment of time? I mean, how specialized is a green job? Well, I would say that it's possible. I am not an expert on clean energy job transitions, um, so I wouldn't like to be very prescriptive about that. We are, of course, in favor of a just transition, of an equitable transition that does not leave those workers behind because those workers historically provided a lot of value to the economy and, and, and a lot of American good, good American middle class jobs were built on that. We uh, at UCS uh, believe is that the cost of that transition for coal communities should not be borne solely by those coal communities and workers. We just have to continue working with the recognition that the technology um, has run its course, that the, the carbon emissions that it continues to produce are not good for the planet, are not good for the health of anybody, and that we need to continue finding ways of transitioning those jobs um, into good, clean energy jobs. In my personal experience, I've started to hear sentiments built up in the past year, especially that, you know, human beings are innovative. We're going to develop solutions. We're going to develop technology that's going to allow us to fight the climate change issue even once the problem has already begun. So can you address that? Is there any other technology, any other solution that we could take to fix the problem? Or are the steps that um, we've been talking about for years, are those really the the best and or only steps to take? When we talk about solutions, which is what we should be talking about, um, then we have a host of technologies, you know, such as the transition towards renewable energy, solar, uh, wind, and electrification of, of, of our grid, and electrification of our um, transportation systems. There are also talks about um, removing carbon from the atmosphere. And we believe at UCS that all of those should be part of the solution. Now, we have to be careful that we don't just stop at say, well, let's just remove the existing carbon uh, and develop the technology to remove carbon from the atmosphere, and then we don't have to worry about anything else, um, because that is another prescription for inaction. We've seen some of that from some, um, from, from some of the more anti-climate change uh, camp, but um, transitioning away from fossil fuels is key. And in Hollywood, we have a lot of movies out there that um, address this issue from a post-apocalyptic standpoint and thinking Day After Tomorrow movies uh, in that vein. Um, And these movies are addressing um, what it seems like we are going through now and potentially will go through. Is is climate change, um, either based on your research or in your opinion, is this the Earth's way of fighting back against what we've done being tenants here? Well, there's a, there's a couple of threats there. First, as, as, a, as a sci-fi fan, 
um, in the fan of apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic films, I have to say that, you know, headlines like the Amazon is burning um, or the Iceland, uh, iconic Iceland glacier uh, dying and having, you know, a, 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 a symbolic um, a funeral for it is basically the way that most of these movies begin with a narrative like that, right? Without being an, an alarmist from a scientific perspective, you know, based on, 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 on facts and based on models and the best known science that, that we are heading towards those sorts of things. And we are heading into um, a very dangerous unknown. We're heading into terra incognita, quite honestly. We do not know and understand what some of the near or long term uh, feedbacks or ecological interactions could. How are those things going to continue to snowball um, and feed back into the climate system? It feels like we're all in that part of the movie where we're yelling to the main character, get out of that movie theater, get out of that house, or the call is coming from inside the house. We're seeing our own horror film unfold before our eyes. Didi, what does that mean for you on the community level? Watching the Hollywood movies? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's it, yeah. <laughs> Hoping people will make that connection. I don't know if I can... I think, uh, and I, I appreciate Juan giving those horrifying hot numbers <laughs> when it comes to weather, uh, uh, temperatures here in Texas. I, I don't even know if we had to look that way towards the movies. I think we already see it. I think especially here in San Antonio and Texas, we see how these rising temperatures are just, how long has it been since we've we've had rain? And I mean significant rain. How long have we been under uh, water restrictions here in San Antonio. I, I don't remember a time when we weren't. Uh, the, the most impacted will be obviously poor people, developing countries, farmers. The people who provide our, our fruits and vegetables are uh, probably going to see it the worst and are already seeing that uh, not just here in the United States, but in other countries. Let's look at Brazil, uh, you know, the, the land that has been. Um, uh, the deforestation didn't just start with these fires recently. It's been happening for many, many, many years. And um, the, the agriculturists, the people that depend on the land, um, have been affected by uh, tearing down their trees and, and destroying their communities when, they were, when those were typically farmlands. Um, so uh, I, I, and we know that we can't wait mid-century, that we really need to take action by 2030. I mean, that's when we have to reduce carbon emissions by 45%. So it has to be even before that so that we don't see more people that we need, like farmers, suffer. That's right. I'd like to say, first, farmers in the Midwest, many farmers in the Midwest, this rainy season, a couple of months ago, they missed their planting season because their fields were underwater. They missed it. So they didn't have, they, they're not going to have a crop. The argument that we that, that these impacts are coming mid-century, it can set up a false narrative that we can wait until then. There is a certain amount of inertia in, 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 in the system, meaning that we are locked in to some amount of warming because the car carbon emissions are persist in the atmosphere and because of many other factors. But that should not be used as an excuse to continue kicking down the can emissions reductions. That's what's gotten us here. The lack of decisive action over the last decades. You know, I'm sitting here and, and one thing I, our listeners can't obviously see, um, but Didi, you're wearing a shirt that says green Latinos and moms clean air, but it's defining the term eco madre, 
right? So just please talk to me about what that means with regards to almost like a call to action for, for everybody. Right. Um, Eco Madres, we're, we're a community of, of Latina moms that are, you know, working in our neighborhoods um, on air pollution, on toxic pollution, and what can we do uh, to reverse that? Uh, what are we going to do to fight, uh, fight that for the health of our children? And uh, yes, we're Latina moms, but we're, at the end of the day, we're all moms, and we all care about our children, and we will all do what we have to do to protect our kids, whether it's from you know, uh, crossing the street without looking both ways uh, when it comes to climate. Um, I, I, this is not an issue for the future. Uh, I, I, this is an issue that is going to impact my son's life. He's 16 years old. So, um, you know, as moms, who else is going to do everything that they possibly can to protect their children from all harm, including climate change? So that's the call to action that we're moms. We have a responsibility to take care of our kids. Thanks once again to Juan and Didi. You can find out more about this issue by checking out this episode's webpage at salute.to slash salute talks or by visiting ucsusa.org and momscleanairforce.org.